verse 9 there, please. Thank you. Now, um, the, the theme of this, these verses is really discussing the emptiness of death. But I have a question for you as we're looking at these verses. Since death is empty and our, all of our lives end in death, what is the advice that Solomon leaves us in these verses for making the most of our short lives? Because Solomon does not leave us just with this emptiness feeling. He gives us actual practical advice. So from verses 3 to 12, what are some things that we can see in there that he gives us as advice on what we should do with our short lives? Yes. So... In verse 7, that's, that's exactly one of the verses I had listed there as advice. He's saying celebrate life, right? He's saying enjoy the fact that you are living and God is giving you breath. And it's okay to enjoy life. So that's one thing that he tells us. What's another thing that he has listed in these verses is ways to make the most of your short life. Anywhere from verses 3 to 12, what is another thing that he tells us? There's hope. There's hope. There is hope. Now, in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, what do you think is the hope that he's talking about for those who are still alive? What, what do you think is specifically is, is mentioned there for the hope that he's talking about? No, <laughs> there is the hope of heaven, but he, but heaven is for people that are dead. Um, so he's talking about while you're still alive, you can still do something. What is that thing you can still do? Yes, apply your heart to wisdom is really the context. If you look at, at um, the, the previous verses that we had looked over the last couple of weeks, I know it's a little unfair. We, we've taken a two-week break, so it's probably out of your memory by now. But um, he's saying, apply your heart to wisdom now 
while you still have the opportunity to make use of your life. And we're going to see that later when we get into later chapters, because he's talking about the uh, advantage of being younger is having time to use your life for wise things and to apply your heart to wisdom now to affect later. Uh, verse 8 tells us, get yourself nice things. That's not normally found in the Bible. But Solomon's like, look, he's like, you don't have to live in misery and afflict yourself. It's okay. You know, sometimes there is, there's a balance, right? We don't want to be wasteful with the resources God has given us. But it's, you should not feel bad for enjoying your life. God never designed you to uh, purposefully afflict misery upon yourself. Uh, verse 9 tells, it, tells us to enjoy your marriage and stay with one partner your entire life. That's really good advice that Solomon learned the hard way. And verse 10 says, work hard, do your best, you only get one shot at this. That's really what verse 10 is talking about. Uh, there's a really interesting story that I read. It's, it goes like this. Uh, Henry Kissinger, in his book, The White House Years, tells of a Harvard professor who had given an assignment and was collecting the papers back from that assignment. And as he handed them back, the next day, at the bottom of one, was written to a student, is this the best you can do? The student thought, no, and redid the paper. It was handed in again, and he received the same comment. This went on for 10 revisions, oh, wow. until the student finally said, yes, this is the best one I can do. The professor replied, fine, I'll read it now. <laughs> But Solomon's trying to get that point across to us. Why are we living life always handing in when we can barely scrape by? He says, what you hand find it to do, the Bible says, do it with thy might. Work hard. Do things for God. Yeah. If you are doing so many things that you can't do any of them well, I ask you, are you actually doing the right things? Yeah. Because God always takes time to do things well. And as his children, we're supposed to reflect that. If we are so busy that we can barely scrape by on all of our responsibilities, I think we are doing things that God does not expect us to do. And you will find that throughout scripture. The people that did well for God and did what God wanted them to do had a focus in life. And lived for that focus. And didn't spread themselves so thin that it seemed like there was no vision anymore. There was a vision in their life because they knew what God had put them on earth to do. And they did that well. And they didn't try to live all of everyone else's life for them. Let's look at verse 13 now. We're going to read from uh, verses 13 to 18. So if the next person read verse 13, we're going to read to verse 18. Before we start reading, the main thought of this section now is going to be foolishness is vanity. And I think this is a more obvious one. We can all understand it to be foolish is emptiness. And it's not going to be very useful to you. But we're going to read a very interesting story. And I want you to be thinking about what is the point of Solomon's story that he's about to tell us. So verse 13 to 18, please. Good work of harvesting also under the sun, and the sea great unto me. Amos Mitchell Christie, and the few guys within it, and there appeared a good king against him, and besieged it, and both went forth against it. 
Verse 15, please. Pharaoh was found Anak, a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same woman. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than the so Solomon is telling us this story, okay? We don't know if he made up this story or if this is something that happened that he's referring to, but he's giving us an illustration, okay? And he says there's this city, there's this wise man, and he rescues the city, but no one remembers what he has done. What do you think is Solomon's point in telling us this story? In the context of foolishness being emptiness, what do you think is his application of the story? You have a foolish city, you have a wise person, you have a war set against that city, you have the wise men delivering it, and yet the city just forgets them like it never happened. What do you think Solomon's trying to tell us in life? Yeah. Just because you are wise doesn't mean everyone else around you will be wise too. Yeah. And I think that's actually really important for us to process because the fact is that the Bible even alludes to this in a different portion where it gives us the idea that if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. Yeah. And so we cannot, and we've talked about this already looking at Ecclesiastes, we cannot rescue the entire world ourselves. God didn't place that responsibility on us. That's God's job. God is the sovereign ruler of creation. But God wants you to be wise for you so you can help whoever he puts into your life to help. Does that make sense? It's the same thing like when an airplane loses pressure and they say what? Put your oxygen on first. If you're trying to help everyone else without taking care of you, you're useless to them. You've got to put on your oxygen first. You've got to be wise for yourself first. And then help people. Now, this wise man did right. He helped the city. But the city forgot him. And God's trying to bring reality into this thing. It's not like you're always going to be honored just because you did the right thing. People will, you will go unnoticed and people will disrespect your wisdom. Be wise for yourself for God's glory. And don't try to do it just to make everyone else happy because it's not going to work. Don't expect everyone to think you're amazing because you're wise. Because it's not going to work. Not all the time. But there's more lessons he has in there. Uh, verses 16 and 18, he says that wisdom is better than strength or military might. There's a lot of small armies that have beaten other armies by being smarter with how they fight, right? Mm -hmm. Verse 16 says, fools despise wisdom even when it rescues them. You, that is so important when you're helping people. Fools will hate you as you're helping them. So you have to help people for God and not for the response you get out of it. If you're helping people because you want a good response out of them and you think you're going to help fools, forget it. Because they will hate you as you are pulling them out of what they're in. So God is saying, you do right for me, not for the other people. It's nice when we get a nice response. It is. We like that. 
but realistically, you're rarely going to get a, a good response from people because how many people are actually wise people? So we help fools because we're doing it for God and we're being wise for ourselves. Now there's a balance, and I don't have time to go into this, but in Proverbs it talks about sometimes you just leave the fool to his folly because you can't do anything for him. I understand that. But my point is you have to enact wisdom regardless of how people respond to you. Verse 17 says, wise words are heard best in attentive silence. That's also good to know. Why is that? Because verse 17 tells us the flip side. It's really hard to be heard even if you're yelling, if you're with fools. So if you are wise, you're trying to impart wisdom to people, and there is a lot of clamor, there's a lot of noise, and it's almost like you have to yell at people. Forget it. Yeah. You're not going to be heard. You need the silence of attentiveness and sit people down and talk to them where they can listen to you. And in verse 18, one foolish sinner can undo much good done by wisdom. He's saying even if that wise man rescues that city, and this isn't in the story, but it's application. Even if that wise man rescues that city and the people forget about him, one foolish king that comes afterwards can erase all that good that wise man did because they just forgot. Right. And so again, he's bringing reality to you. He's saying, yes, be wise. Yes, help people. But realize that they have their own responsibility for their own actions and their own responses. And you can't expect everything to turn out perfectly just because you did right because they have free will too. They have free will too. Let's go to chapter 10 then, and let's go through verses 1 through 4. So if the next person can read verse 1, we're going to go then to verse 4. We're still on this theme of foolishness being emptiness. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is in his right hand, but a fool's heart If the spirit of a ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. Now, verse 2 is talking about, see, it says the right hand, left hand, okay? This is imagery because most people are right-handed and most people, that's their dominant hand, okay? So it's using an imagery of a strong hand and weak hand. And what it means is a wise man skillfully controls his heart, okay? He's in control of his passions. He's in control of what is important to him. The fool loses his heart easily. Verse 4 talks about if a ruler, this was very interesting because I felt like it, the verse could go both ways, but after I, I read it a few more times, I believe this is the correct interpretation. A ruler, if a ruler wrongfully turns against you, so the ruler's wrong, okay? Your leadership is wrong, and they go against you. Do not be angry and quit your position, Solomon says. Don't throw your hands up in a fit and be like, if you're going to be that way, I'm done. Because you need me more than I need you. Don't have that response to a ruler, to someone in authority over you, when they get angry with you for the wrong reasons. He says, instead of just quitting, he says, yield to his anger, humble yourself, because yielding will pacify great offenses taken against you. 
Because, in essence, when he cools off and he sees your humble response, he might think twice about what he originally said to you. But if you react in anger to his anger, he will never forgive you. Because he's in charge of you, and you better listen to him. You see how this is a wise way to deal with authority. You don't try to buck up against authority when they get mad at you. You try to live peaceably with them, you still submit to them, and you bide your time for them to come back and apologize to you. You make that opportunity for them to come back and apologize to you. All right, now let's look at verses 5 through 7. If you can read those next few verses, starting again on this side, and verse 5, please. Holy is said to the great beginning, and the rich speak in the law of grace. Okay, what is the point Solomon is making in these verses? Five to seven, what is he saying? Since uh, many are natural and universals are the experience of life. Yes. We have, live in a reversed world. Yeah. And I, I, I laugh because I have in my notes, this is not a new phenomenon. No. It's not like we woke up in the 21st century and realized, man, we're stupid at electing new leaders. It's almost like we were stupid back then, too. So, rulers set foolish and undignified people to be exalted, and they put the wise people to be debased and disrespected. The people that are supposed to be dignified are not dignified, and the people that are supposed to be the people that are the, the lower part of society, and I'm not just talking about the social strata you're born into, I'm talking about people that are just fools that ought not to be in leadership. Those are the exalted people. Solomon says, our rulers do this all the time because they don't understand wisdom. It's the same thing today, it was the same thing back then, and we talked about this theme in Ecclesiastes. Life is cyclical, it goes in cycles. And the fact is that man has always been in the way man is, and he will always elect foolish leaders without the wisdom of God. All right, let's read verses 8 to 10. So verses 8 to 10 is talking about the cause and effect of what we do. And so basically Solomon is using these different specific examples to drive at a major point. His point is, be wise in the activities that you carry out. Because whatever you sow, you reap. And whatever you go out to do will come back to repay you. And in verse 10 specifically, he's talking about prudence. He's saying, if you want effective work, think before you act. He's talking, he used a very simple example for us to, to understand. He says, if you don't sharpen your axe and your axe is, axe is blunt, you have to work harder to chop the log. He says, sharpen the axe first. But it's, it's a life principle. He says, think before you act, so before you start doing something, you know the consequences of what you're about 
to do. So this is showing us that wisdom is not this ethereal thing up in the air of something that we have to somehow philosophically achieve. Wisdom is practical down to earth for us. But we need to understand the Bible that way. Because God didn't write the Bible as a book of philosophy to confuse us, although there is lots of philosophy in the Bible. He wrote it as a practical guide for how to live. And Ecclesiastes brings that out because the whole book of Proverbs is very practical advice, yes, but I, I find Ecclesiastes even more practical, to be honest with you. Because he's, Solomon is taking Proverbs and says, this is how it works, and this is why the other way doesn't work. So it's tying together prudence, wisdom, and life for us. Uh, verse 11, can we start on verse 11? We're going to go to verse 15 then, please. So verse 14 is telling us that fools are always boasting in what they will do in the future or how the world will develop when they are gone. But no one knows the future. Okay? James chapter 4 says a very similar thing. It says, you don't have to turn there, but James 4, 13 to 17 says this. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him... It is a sin. So James is making a similar point to uh, Solomon in this uh, verse because he's saying, do not assume and boast that you know how the future world unravel. Only God knows that. And James' solution for it is say if God wills. Have your mindset on if this is the will of God, then we will do this. Instead of telling people what you will do. Because it is a fool who always says, I know exactly what will happen. Because he is always proven wrong. Because he doesn't control it. Verse 15 explains that, and I think this is, this is humorous again. Explains fools cannot do the simplest of tasks. They cannot go to the city. Uh, going to the city in these ancient times was, you know, a lot like it is today also, but even more important for them because everything was in the city. The market was in the city. Uh, everything that they, they needed uh, to purchase was in the city. And so going to the city was like a normal development of childhood. You lived in the country where your farm was and you learned how to go to the city so you could buy whatever you needed, sandals, socialize, just live life, okay? If you don't know how to go to the city, you're a child. And this is Solomon's point. He says, 
individuals can even work hard and they frustrate themselves because they try to build these very complicated life structures on the basis of not being able to do the simple things. So their life designs fall apart because they can't do the simple things. So Solomon's advice for such fools is learn to go to the city before you boast about what you're going to do next year. We're tying in these ideas together. But Solomon is like, look, learn to do the simple things in life. And if you're trying to create this wonderful philosophy of how the future will unravel, you need to know how to do what everyone else does. Don't put the horse before the car, car before the horse. <laughs> Don't put the horse before the car. Don't put the car before the horse in, the, in this example. All right, uh, verse uh, 16. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter. If the next person can read verse 16, please. Okay, so verses 16 to 17, so just two verses for you to look at for the second. What is Solomon's message in verses 16 and 17? Yes, he's painting a picture of an ignorant ruler who's not able to control his, his subjects or doesn't have the wisdom to order things the way they're supposed to be ordered, correct? So what he's trying to tell us in practical application is order and discipline brings about the prosperity that we need, that we want, and chaos and indulgence and constant partying destroys that prosperity. That's what he's really trying to tell us. If you want a successful life, Quit the indulgence, quit the partying, and put your efforts into discipline and order in your life. Now, we already said you can enjoy life, right? But that doesn't give us a ticket to be foolish. Yeah. And so Solomon is always balancing these ideas. He's like, look, enjoy life, but if you want to live the party life, you're going to live a, a life that's void of prosperity. Because you have no order and discipline to arrange your life to actually strive for what you should be going after. Do you want to say something? It just reminds me of our society. We have this huge thrust <coughs> of work, 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 work. And it takes such effort to be disciplined. And then by the weekend, everyone wants to be done and just spend the money and get mm -hmm. it done. And just there's no anything else structured discipline is such effort because they feel like they put in their discipline in the week. Mm -hmm. Discipline to be disciplined to be a church goer, things 
Well, there's, there's a lot of things at play with that one. Like, for example, and that's a great example, uh, one thing in that is that our bosses discipline us rather than us disciplining us, okay? So you go to work five or six days a week, but you have to be told what to do. I'm not saying you specifically, I'm just saying society, you understand? And they're making sure that you punch in your time correctly, and they're making sure you get paid correctly. All these things, they are your discipline for you. And so when it's the weekend, you don't have a boss in your house. <laughs> yeah, I was close to it. <laughs> and um, so you party because the discipline's not from you anyway. It's from your boss. You're not at work anymore. Okay, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that sometimes we have the wrong goals in life and we just strive to do really well at work and then almost nothing else matters. Someone's trying to give us a bigger picture in Ecclesiastes. And then there's another aspect, and we could go on and on about this because there's so many problems with, with how our society runs its week. But, but another aspect of this is we don't care about the simple things anymore. And Solomon and his great extravagance said, look, and we're going to get to where he talks about this more. But he says, look, enjoy eating a meal together. Enjoy a marriage relationship Enjoy being around your family. Enjoy just wearing clothes. <laughs> like, is like trying to be practical. He's like, look, you don't need all this wonderful mansion of a kingdom that I have. You just need to enjoy what God gives you, and you will be happy. Live for God, enjoy what he gives you, and stop trying to push to get some, some expectation that society get, puts upon you. So there's a lot of reasons why we party on the weekend, but we're trying to forget a lot. A lot of society is trying to forget that they aren't living for they, what they want on the weekend days. That's why they party on the weekends, because they're trying to forget the order that they don't have all week long. And God's saying, put in six days of ordered purpose and on the seventh day rest. And you won't need to try to forget how the rest of the week is going. That's a good point. That's a good point. I like that we brought that up. Um, verse 17 exalts order in our lives, okay? Print, uh, the prince should be the rightful, dignified ruler. The servants should be in their rightful place. Strength, not drunkenness, should be the goal. Okay, this is the opposite of our culture. We're already talking about this. Our culture prefers the easy life, the party life. Take, take the path of least resistance. That's what our society wants. Solomon says, no, actually have a goal in mind and achieve that. Verse 19 is his wise rebuttal to the riotous living. He's like, if you want an actual reason, why not? Let me give you a good reason. He says in verse 16, someone has to pay for what you're enjoying. He says, if your entire kingdom, if, the, if, if, if in your entire kingdom, your rulers are enjoying partying in the morning all day long and not doing their actual duties, your people are going to be paying high taxes so they can afford what they want. Now, that's not explicitly what he's saying, but I'm trying to explain the story to you, okay, because he's using an illustration. He's saying, look, someone has to pay for what you enjoy. So if you're going to be responsible, you pay for what you enjoy. And then you will enjoy it, not for overindulgence, but for pleasure, appreciating the work that went into it. 
The people that constantly overindulge are generally the people that don't appreciate the work that it took and that it took to provide that. But the people that will work hard for it, Solomon is saying, I hope those people can appreciate it for pleasure and not for overindulgence because they actually appreciate the work that went into getting that time off. Does that make sense? So Solomon's trying to lead us into a balanced life. Are there any questions over chapter 10 before we move on to chapter 11? All right, let's move on to chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read to verse 6. We're going to talk about the concept of excessive calculation being vanity, trying too hard to figure out how everything will work. It's being empty. So let's start in verse 1 and let's read to verse 6. Thank you. Now, can someone please summarize for me <coughs> verses 1 to 6? What is the summary concept in verses 1 to 6? to help us to understand that you cannot know all the factors in life. And so he gives us some practical advice on how to continue without knowing everything. The first concept he gives us is spread your risk and diversify. He says, do a number of different things inside of your work. So, for example, for their culture, it would be Plant multiple different crops. Or if you are a trader, trade multiple different goods. <laughs> or if you're building a portfolio for uh, retirement, invest in multiple different stocks. Solomon is like, look, you can't know how everything will turn out. You don't control all the factors. You can't understand all of the factors. So spread your risk. Do not try to look for perfect circumstances, he also tells us. Or try to calculate how every aspect of every investment will turn out. God is the one who orchestrates the harvests, and he blesses that year what he wants to bless. So those who are willing to work hard in multiple hard situations, this is what these verses are talking about, hard work. If you're willing to work hard in multiple situations, you will gather in the harvest you're looking for across those different situations. 
So he's getting us out from being tunnel visioned on this is my only thing that I do. Like a farmer, for example, if he was really good at planting, let's say, uh, wheat, right? Solomon would advise him, plant the wheat that you're good at, but also plant some other crops in case the wheat fails this year. So he's giving you an opportunity to think about give, spreading out your risk a little bit and investing in different types of things. Just having a wiser outlook on life than I can figure out everything and plan it perfectly because your perfect plans will be broken. Verse 2 is um, important to point out just because it's something you'll see throughout the entire Old Testament and parts of the New Testament too. Um, this is Hebrew poetry, okay? He's not talking about literally the number seven or eight, okay? He's adding emphasis to the concept. So Hebrew poetry does this all the time. They will set a number to something, and then they will increase the number. And what it mostly means is pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Now, there is a little bit, I think, of uh, meaning in the seven, and that is just because it is the number of completion. And so the idea that I get from this verse is that Solomon is saying, spread out your work until you have done so to the perfect degree, then do it once more. Because you don't know the perfect degree. So, but I just wanted to point that out because it's important when you're reading your Bible, like when in Proverbs where it says these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. The Bible isn't literally saying these are the only six things that God hates. Okay, it's Hebrew expressiveness. To say these are six sins. Yes, they are even seven sins. It's an emphasis. Pay attention. I'm about to tell you something important. It's a Hebrew literary device. Okay, Paul uses it later. I just want to throw it out there so you're aware that the Bible does that. There's, <laughs> there's some people that pay way too much attention to numbers in the Bible. And God's just trying to be poetic. Okay, So don't over try to list every single number in scripture. God is expressing himself in a creative manner. Okay, uh, let's finish up um, with verses. Um, let's see. Let's uh, well. Let's go to verses seven and eight, and we'll probably finish up there. Right before we get there, I just want to mention this. We don't have time to look into this, but um, spreading out your resources is also a very good way to give. Okay, I would recommend you read Luke sixteen in the context of this idea. Okay, because there's a parable. Where a person who's about to lose his job forgives a lot of people's debts. And why this links up so well with what Solomon is saying is because if you in your life tend to be a giver to many people, you make many friends so that if you fall on hard times, there are many options of people that can help you. So there's lots of very practical applications for this, but it's, an, it's a mentality towards life. I spread out my risk is really is really Saul's, uh, Solomon's mentality. Okay, uh, let's read verses seven and eight, please. Truly, the light is sweet and it is a pleasant and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes of the beholder. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh into eternity. Hmm. So the idea of verses 7 and 8 is that youth and old age both are emptiness if you're looking for your fulfillment in your age. Okay? 
Uh, Solomon's advice to young people is enjoy the outdoors and your ability to enjoy the sunlight. Enjoy the fact that God has given you the freedom to be active. Okay? But take into consideration at the same time the days when you cannot enjoy the outdoors and the days when things will go badly and wisely use now when you have your strength. Uh, let's finish off the chapter. Let's read verses 9 and 10, please. Actually, I think I'm not. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou, for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Thank you. Yes. So Solomon says, he gives more advice to young people. He says these two very important concepts. Live your younger years of, sorry, enjoy your younger years of strength and joy. He says first enjoy it. We already talked about that. Number two, he's going to say something that sounds wrong, but I'm going to explain what the balance that he's going to bring to this. Okay. He's going to say enjoy and live by your heart's desires and what you can see. But just remember, God judges every action. Yeah. <laughs> so here's what Solomon is trying to tell us now. If you want to live by your heart and you want to live by the things you can see, here's what you do. Purify your heart and remove sin from your sight. That's how you live by your heart. Make sure your heart is clean. It's like if you're going to live by what you see and if you want to live by how you feel, then make sure you're feeling truth and make sure you're seeing right. Simply living for the moment as a young person is just emptiness. It will end up in regret because you will make foolish decisions. So enjoy now what is righteous instead of collecting baggage for the future. That's Solomon's advice to young people. That's about all the time that we have for this lesson today, but let's close in so far. Lord Jesus, we thank you very much for the wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes and the practical advice that you have given us through Solomon. And I just pray that you would help us. I know there's a lot of information for us to take in. But Father, I pray that we would see how practical this book is and even go back on our own and reread it with a different viewpoint. God, This is not a book of, of depressing realities of how boring or how empty life is. It's a book of hope if we will learn from Solomon's mistakes. And I pray, God, that we would learn to be wise now so we don't make the mistakes of Solomon and we live for the future by living right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, we're dismissed until about 15 minutes.